It's July 12, 2021, and I'm here with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's headlines in the world of acquisition. First one we got, DOD cancels $10 billion Jedi contract from FedScoop. Act, quote, acting DOD CIO John Sherman told reporters Tuesday that while Jedi was conceived in 2017 with noble intent, it was, quote, developed at a time when the department's needs were different and our cloud conversancy was less mature. Now DOD is headed in a new direction with this enterprise cloud effort, launching the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability, JWCC, a multi-billion dollar multi-cloud multi-vendor contract. So the saga of, of Jedi, the multi-year saga, comes to a close here. And it's funny that John Sherman here, the new acting CIO, said, we, we, we had this idea for what kind of one cloud to rule them all when we were less mature in our knowledge about what we're buying, despite the fact that there wasn't anything particularly new about cloud in 2017. But it always struck me as weird. At first, they were talking about just 10%, like this $10 billion 10-year contract was really just 10% of DOD cloud. And now it just got into such a food fight. <laughs> they had to cancel it. They got protested. And now they'll just move on to something else where everybody gets a slice and maybe they didn't need the one cloud to rule them all. So... What's your thoughts there, Matt? Yeah, I think I know what happened here. I think because they were modeling it off of the IC and the work that the IC had done. And I think DOD knew, for one, I don't think they expected the Air Force's cloud one to jump jump ahead so fast. So I think the Air Force did did demonstrate how how better, how good their department could actually get at managing cloud services or at least have a better understanding. So I think what they were doing is they didn't want to have a multi-award at, at that point because they didn't know how the consumption-based services was going to work. They didn't know where the service is going to use it. How are they going to use it? So I think they were trying to do this first. I, they definitely shouldn't have done 10 years. I always thought that was a terrible idea because it just gets the emotions high for these companies where they see all that money going out the door. I think if they would have done it for five years, it would have made sense to get things settled, get the department, get the policies in place for how consumption-based works, the funding rules understood and all that kind of stuff. I think it would have been good if they had done that. So I see now though, now there's more, there's the Army, Navy, Air Force are using cloud like crazy, but they have a much better understanding. We have pilots going on and Congress is more engaged on it. So I think now they feel more comfortable with the multi-award, but I do, so I do understand why they didn't go that initially, but the 10 the year was just, I think it's insane. You think so? Uh, Even if it was five year and they still signaled like this was, this was going to be the focal point and things probably would start integrating into it. Do you think it still would have been the same food fight? Like I get you, the IC, they ran off of AWS and it looked like, oh, can we just do that same thing here? And they wanted to do it fast, but then, oh, this is the problem of government contracting. Everything has to be super fair, even though that's unfair to the customer who just wants to get the capability. And so yeah. they had to open up this big solicitation and get this big process going and everybody's equity had to be involved into it. So it got bigger and bigger, probably. I don't know. It just felt like it was probably always going to be headed for this kind of problem. I think anytime this is a lesson learned for other contracts too, anytime you throw a $10 million figure out there and a 10-year period of performance, you up the ante on the emotions for the competitors because they don't see they don't see a place for them to enter at any point in the near future. I think where they went wrong- five, too, five billion in five years would have been fine. Five billion, I think it would have been a little bit more palatable, but I think the messaging was also off because- I, reading more into this, it seems like DOD never envisioned this to be like the one cloud to rule them all. Yeah. They envisioned it as something to mature 
the department's understanding of how to use cloud. But they and, use multiple languages because you kept hearing Dana DC talk about, oh, this was going to be the focal point for a live, the yeah. JADC2 type of stuff. So it, it seemed like they're trying to justify, especially to the higher ups, hey, we have all this duplication and overlap. Let's get the one thing to rule them all. Even if it was just 10%, like they said, it was like, it's going to be 10%. So that's not a monopoly on DOD cloud, but like the other, it felt like other language was kind of pushing it in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Muddled messaging for sure. Here's another headline, Microsoft in reaction. Microsoft's commitment to DOD remains steadfast from Microsoft itself. Quote, the 20 months since DOD selected Microsoft as its Jedi partner highlights issues that warrant the attention of policymakers. When one company can delay for years, Critical technology upgrades for those who defend our nation, the protest process needs reform. Amazon filed this protest in November 2019, and its case was expected to take at least another year to litigate and yield a decision with potential appeals afterward. So again, like another year plus and then potential appeals. We're, we're talking like 22, 23, and this thing started out in 2017. And we all know like how protests kind of contracting officers and, and even other acquisition officials, they're like deer in headlights with it. And it, it creates a lot of uh, issues there. So maybe this whole issue will open up some of the protest process, I guess, for policymakers to look into to see whether potentially it's too restrictive and creates too much litigation. Yeah. I mean, my personal opinion, and I've actually had to testify at a GAO protest one time, and it was interesting, but I my opinion is that it should stop at the GAO. Like this idea of the, the Court of Federal Claims, they should have to prove, there should be a higher bar for that other than just some irregularity. It should have to be, I think it should have to be something like, like fraud or corruption or something Something major happened to get it above the GAO level. There's a 90-day clock for a reason with GAO. The idea is- That was 100 not, day. I thought it was 90 or 100, but it's like, a, it's like a short window. And the idea is not to drag these things on in perpetuity, you have a vendor who's sitting there like waiting to go execute so yeah it's if you have that window but then you allow them to go to the court of federal claims and, and spend a year it defeats the whole purpose so i think they should have more rules in place and i think there have been i'm trying to remember but there were some rules that congress tried to pass where they consider passing where they'd be there'd be like if they lost they'd have to pay the claims of the other vendor and yep. anyway, it never made it in final language, but there there have been different things proposed over the years. And I, I agree with you. They should definitely bring some of that back. Put some kind of cost penalty if you don't win so that you up the bar on, you better have a really solid case before you go do this, not make it, not, not be frivolous with them. Yep. And the GAO timeline is 100 days and you have 30 okay. days to, for the agency to file its report. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure we'll be seeing a little bit more of that. And of course, there's the high profile protest of the Artemis Award to SpaceX, where, where the, the national team, we were talking about that earlier. And that one was interesting, right? It's like SpaceX underbid. I guess it was mostly a process problem where, oh, we should have been given an opportunity to revise our bid rather than just going straight to, to SpaceX. But again, there seems to be another place where the customer probably just wanted SpaceX and SpaceX probably just provide the better value. <laughs> but like this whole process is not helping government get to value. But that's yet to be seen. So we'll, we'll move on. Here's actually a really good article I would actually encourage people to read because they go through a ton of different use cases throughout the military. Uh, and this one's called Military Applications of 3D Printing from All 3DP. And here's just one quote. Uh, quote, 
With the metal 3D printer from MarkForge, the army was able to fabricate hatch plugs that were not only significantly cheaper, but sleeker and more efficiently designed. Army engineers simplifying the design of the hatch plugs down to four parts from 10. And additive manufacturing saved the army more than 244000 in costs for low volume production, as well as streamline the design for crucial equipment. So this is just one example, but they have tons of examples throughout all of the services uh, in terms of where 3D printing is making its mark. And sticking with the army here, they are actually talking about like these massive 3D printers to create like uh, hulls and uh, out of steel. And so it doesn't seem there's a lot of, I guess, applications that 3D printing won't be changing in the future. And of course, I, I was always interested, why does the commercial industry, they're looking to actually disrupt the aerospace industry first. I guess it has all of those qualities that you'd expect. They, they have even lower volumes than like Navy oftentimes in, in the army. And it's also just like these older, even more monopolistic type of firms. So it's just like ripe for being disrupted. And there's another, another one we have here from Relativity Space. They got their 3D printer for launch engines and they had a giant new facility here 1.2 billion of capital they raised over eight months and they bought a former boeing c-17 manufacturing plant and they're going to try to reduce the time it takes to 3d print rockets from quite a while to just 60 days and reduce the number of parts by thousands so i'm pretty bullish on 3d printing i checked that article out and I guess we'll just see the, the thing I love about it is it turns hardware into software, right? It makes hard, makes hardware problems look a lot more like software. And so like the DOD can hide behind its fence of, oh, we're different for only so long, right? Yeah, that, oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about it that way, but you're right. Especially since the, at some point, I, I always felt this whenever I would first was introduced to 3D printing is, and the Marines were doing like a lot of good things is you would just, you could just have hubs around the country where you did really large forgings or really large productions of things. And then the smaller scale stuff could be distributed, you know, more widely. There is like an infrastructure calls for some of the really large things like the halls for the JLTV or if we start building ships. Yeah. Some of these things like uh, that was, by the way, an extremely interesting article, lots of good examples. The one that stuck out to me is the icon. I've been watching them from back in the day when they were building these modular houses that I always thought were really cool. But now they're going to do it for exploration on the moon and building basically moon bases. There was an example there with the army on building basically hangars for planes and vehicles and stuff like that as like protection, environmental protection and and ballistic protection. So there's all kinds of, it's, it's incredible. I think this one is at the, the top two or three of things that will totally change DOD, uh, especially given this other one. One of the examples that stuck out to me was the British Armed Forces and UK's Ministry of Defense have created a new technique that could offer on-demand 3D printed explosives at the front line. So I did not know about that, but 3D printed explosives. Well, I'm assuming you're still going to have to, you're not going to be able to 3D print in a, the, the chemicals, right? <laughs> like you just I like fill it. I think, I think it does. I think it sounds like it, I don't know, I have to get more of the details, but it sounds like you could conceivably like 3D print the, the casings and 3D print the explosives and then assemble them <laughs> in some kind of frontline kind of facility. But I don't know. I just, that, that always stuck out to me. I, that always got to me because you always saw that in World War One and World War Two. It's just, you always use a ton more munitions than you expect right at the beginning. Yeah. And there's no way 
that America's industrial base is going to be able to keep up, especially with missiles, but even for like dumber bombs, like how are they even ever going to get there? We practically ran out with uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. We had to do some a monster surge, but we were running out of JDAMs and other missiles and we had to do a super ramp up and it was hard. They had to hire and get equipment in place. They had to jump through hoops. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a really great point. The last thing on this, I did pull some market research about just the additive manufacturing market and how it's yeah. growing. And they're forecasting that it will reach 35 billion by 2026. And they expect it to grow by 19 to 20% a year with the, the largest share of it over 55% going to the metal segment. So yeah, for the military side, you can just see 3D forge or forgings like titanium forgings, aluminum forgings. If you look across DAD for all the, the major weapon systems, that is always a huge lag time. That's what drives a lot of schedule for production of, of efforts. Just thinking about like scaling up some of these small companies, if you can scale them up and production is not the biggest issue and you can just 3D print some of their inventions that they come up with, it really seems to be a good solution to not having to build these monster truck factories like we do today, but maybe you can do some of the smaller scale stuff at a lower cost. So yeah. Definitely an interesting space. And at George Mason, we were hosting uh, the director of the Mantech ah. program in DoD and several other big wigs uh, this Wednesday for an event on 3D printing and DoD policies. So, so awesome. check that out at George Mason GovCon. But there, we've got a couple other 3D printing things here that we'll just run through real quick. U.S. Air Force looks to fly with 3D printed parts from Automation World. And here they're talking to, in a, on a number of different engines, the F-110 they're trying uh, some new sump covers that's actually helping quite a bit, apparently, um, in terms of cost, because again, low volume, but <laughs> so this is helping out the new GE 9X, which they claim is the most powerful jet engine in the world, is flying with uh, 3D printed components and was able to reduce 300 parts to just seven. And then for a turboprop engine, the GE 90, they were able to increase fuel efficiency by 10%. And again, reduce parts from 800 to a dozen. And so this, that, that part is just completely fascinating to me, like how you can just get rid of tons and tons of parts and what that does to your supply chain. And it looks like probably for the near, I guess for the next few years, a lot of this stuff will be pretty integrated until I guess you get enough of an ecosystem. So it seems like it's, it's making sense. You're seeing like Hadrian and again, relativity space. They're just going to be much more integrated as companies producing these systems because they don't need to go out to these mom and pop shops for like this, that, and the other that require different types of machine tools. Yeah. Unless, unless the innovation is going to be in the design, I could see where the designs start to become a whole kind of other market. And these small companies are coming up with, you know, new innovative ways of designing things or new materials to make it stronger and more lightweight. Like you could see evolution. Maybe there, I don't know, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. But yeah, that's also one of the interesting things about the 3D design process. You don't have to like just do things that are perfect squares or circles anymore, right? So maybe there will be a bifurcation of those types of competencies. And just two other articles real quick. Marine Corps wants digital blueprint locker for access to 3D printing plans anywhere. So they're looking for a big centralized system there. And similarly... U.S. Air Force funds shipping container 3D printer printing facility secured by blockchain from 3D print. So this one's more about the logistics than, than the storage and how you move it around. But again, the services 
are all doing a bunch of small but interesting things here, trying to make advanced manufacturing come together. And maybe it will be like we've all we've been in this digital engineering thing for decades now, but it just never seems to scale in the DoD. Maybe it's like additive manufacturing that really like breaks breaks the loop and really forces digital engineering to the forefront rather than trying to just get digital engineering for its own sake. I don't know. Hope so. So the next one we got, NATO hopes to launch new defense tech accelerator by 2023 from Defense News. Diana will also be, Diana is the name of the supposed DARPA of NATO. Diana will be also responsible for building and managing a network meant to help relevant startups grow and support NATO's technology needs via grant programs. Also, the NATO Innovation Fund, as it's called, would have, will be running about 15 years, underwritten about 70 million euros per year. So looks like Anne is trying to be like a DARPA, but they're also managing it differently. They're forcing like trusted capital marketplace and other things in there as well. It seems like you're seeing DARPA grow up everywhere, right? Like the UK is trying to get its own DARPA. Every country wants its own DARPA. Now NATO wants its own DARPA. Hopefully it works out. Yeah, I have one word for this thing. It's a mess. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess? A mess. Yeah. Well, we just gave uh, DARPA twice as much money, right? Like their budget is doubling. Yeah, 7 billion now. Yeah. That's absurd. Like, what are they going to do with that money? I don't know. But I don't. I mean, I think DARPA is organized in a way. They have enough independence. They have enough. They have they, their system, the personnel system, where they, you know, bring in, bring in people for a few years and they bring in the top notch people, highly selective. Can you, double, can you double the number of top notch people willing to come in? Yeah, that's a good, that is a good question. But I guess just comparing, I, I have a lot of faith in DARPA. I think they've proven that not everything they go after works, but they have enough successes to more than warrant keeping them funded. Yeah. Doubling their funding. Maybe that's not a good idea, but this idea with Diana is like, it's like a hodgepodge of good ideas to be able to expect NATO, which is the most highly bureaucratic entity maybe in the world to be able to have company or countries give money and not have any guarantee that their companies in their countries are going to get some of that. And that it's going to be independent through some InQtel type organization. And, but also it'll have to be trusted capital, but it's only 83 million a year. I don't know. I'm just like seeing, I'm running the numbers on this and I'm just going, I, I see this breaking down quickly. Yeah, the NATO <laughs> innovation fund will be, I, I think it's separate. And then Diana, no. I don't know what his funding is going to be, but yeah, I agree with you. And I think there, there's definitely going to be quotas on Diana, right? Like you're probably yeah. going to get yeah. back what you pay in, but you're not really sure how that's going to work out. But So it means it won't really be competitive. And if it's run like InQtel, because they were saying this was meant to be, it wasn't going to be run by, here's the thing that I picked up on. We believe it should be run by companies that have a broad range of experience. He cited InQtel as the type of partner NATO would seek to run the day-to-day business of the fund. So if you run it like InQtel- That's not a company. Oh, I guess it is. It's a it's yeah. like a partnership intermediary agreement or something, but yeah, it's like a PIA, but they have, they can do, they can decide what they get by equity in, but that means they're buying equity. It doesn't mean that they're actually doing necessarily like the trusted capital. They're only they're investing in things that are going to have a return on investment and not necessarily to, to keep certain industries afloat because you're afraid of them going to China. So it's just to me, they only have 83 million to work with. And on top of that, it says that it will be the nations providing the funds and giving the general direction. So it's just, it's hodgepodging. Intel has a lot of independence. DARPA has a ton of independence. I don't see this having a lot of independence. And I think that will make it inefficient, but we'll see. I'm not very bullish on this one. 
Tell us how you really think. So here's the next. I think that's probably right, though. So we'll, we'll definitely check back in on this in certain years time, right? 2023 is when they want to launch it. So we're still quite a ways out. So next one we got here, a look into the secret world of the space rapid capabilities office from Federal News Network. We have about five people on average on each program. That's it. That's the way we keep our organization small and agile. We just put the best of the best on those programs, and they're all experts in what they do and can get it done with a smaller team. Robert said his office is working eight months faster than the average Department of Defense pays for awarding contracts. In the time the office has been active, it has awarded 50 contracts and expects to award five more by the year's end. And then there's another, there's a, there's several articles out here on the space RCO, but the breaking defense article too soon for a single acquisition shop from the space RCO head. And they're talking about the space systems command in, in the space force, whether it's going to actually nab up all these other organizations like the space RCO, like uh, space development agency. And I guess the answer was not right now. He's not looking for it to happen right now, at least because they're the coordination's already being enhanced by the creation of quote, the Space Force Program Integration Council or the PIC, which started up last September. The PIC includes SMC, the Space RCO, the Air Force RCO, which still has some legacy space efforts, the Missile Defense Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, and the Space Development Agency. So I think this is a, a, in your wheelhouse, Matt. What's your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I think he's right. Uh, RCO, the space RCO, to me is similar to the Air Force RCO, where I don't, I could see it never being integrated. It's they're meant to be separate, independent organizations, not unlike DARPA, but more doing the mature technology stuff and being a little bit closer to the operator. What space. would the point of the board be if, yeah, if you were under, you either oh. direct, you directly report to Space Systems Command or you have your like board that gets you around a lot of that stuff. It feels like you can't have both. Yeah, the Air Force RCO has a board with a secretary and the chief on it. The space RCO doesn't? The space RCO, I think, um, is actually reports direct to the space um, commander. So they, I think they still have a board and they'll still probably be somewhat dictated by the PIC, which I think you'll talk about in another article. I think the PIC will probably drive some of that. But yeah, no, I agree. I think this is good. Keep their numbers low, focus their programs on some of the key things. I looked at some of the RDOCs real quick just to see what some things they might be doing. Looks like they might be doing some ORS stats, operationally responsive stats, some solar energy. There's a solar power project to get power to expeditionary forces. Is that the power beaming thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would I love to see that work. That would be like awesome, but <laughs> it seems hard. <laughs> well, there is a there actually is a demo of that of like solar power being used for power, but yeah, from space and stuff. I, I don't know much about that one, but yeah, they have a few projects, but there's a lot of them that yeah they can't talk about. But yeah, I'm personally, I, I think I love to see that space has an organization that has that kind of culture where they're delegating, they're, you know, hiring really good people, giving them, giving them the leeway to do the smart things. And I think the quote that I took away that I really liked is they don't have to come to me unless it's required by law. <laughs> I think that's great. So yeah, keep it up. And then we'll see. I think we'll see probably at some point we'll see some of their success stories and hopefully it will be well. But yeah, I'm happy if they never become part of SSC. Just keep them as a separate entity. All right. Yeah, that was actually a pretty good quote there. Don't come to me unless it's required by law. Yeah, sticking with that leadership, DHS's Correa to retire after 40 years in government from Federal News Network. Her dynamic leadership and unrelenting focus on procurement integrity and innovation has been a hallmark within the government acquisition community. 
in particular, her vision of standing up the landmark procurement innovation lab has paid off handsomely. So Soraya Correa, I call her an acquisition all-star. She was on the podcast. Um, sad to see her go, but she's done tremendous stuff. When I first started back in the early 2010s, DHS had a pretty terrible <laughs> reputation for their acquisition processes. And Soraya Correa, just, I, I don't, you can't just put it all on her, but man, was that turned around. Oh yeah, no, I'm with you. I think even until just a couple of years ago, I didn't have the most positive impression of DHS. I just always heard that they adopted like DOD practices, but in some ways were, was worse. And so it wasn't until I got, in, got understood what the pill was doing and some of the things that were going on in her shop. And yeah, she definitely changed my view on some of the things that can be done with source selections and how to make life easier on contractors that are trying to trying to play in the government space, but instead of just putting them through the wickets every single time, there's like some smart things you can do to where you like basically tell them, tell them when they're good, tell them when they're have a good chance at, at getting work and tell them when they don't and don't make them spend millions of dollars doing detailed proposals. So no, I've learned a lot from what the pill's done. I think it's great. And I think she has good people that she's empowered and left to take the reins but yeah good things to come yeah the dhs pill boot camp is probably one of the better trainings that you can yeah. find in government uh, tons of great stuff next one we got and we'll stick with the kind of personnel stuff former air force procurement leader named ceo of drone firm bolanzi from FedScoop, and this is of course uh will roper who's now the ceo over there it felt like a natural fit to me to bring my industry knowledge as well as operations and logistics experience to help create disruptive solutions for the transportation of medium to heavy weight payloads. So there goes, unfortunately, it's unfortunate to see another vanguard of the acquisition world leave uh, government recently, but hopefully he does good stuff and we'll see what happens with Valanzi. Yeah, no, it's going to be, it is going to be interesting to see. They've, they've been hiring some really good people that, and uh, yeah, with Dr. Roper at the helm, there's going to be some surprises coming. So. <laughs> And one that's potentially not on, on a high note, Katie Arrington placed on leave amid probe into suspected disclosure of classified information from FedScoop. So Katie Arrington, she's the CISO that's leading up the CMMC. And apparently she disclosed, there wasn't very much information about what exactly happened, but she may have released some classified information and, and that kind of got her out of there. And I was assuming her time was about up when Ellen Lord left anyway. Not exactly the reason I thought she was going to leave, but I think we all thought she was going to be leaving it and the reins over. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens with CMMC going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to, I think we're going to see some changes in CMMC. We'll see what the details are, but yeah, I don't know the details and I don't want to speculate, <laughs> but yeah, it'd be, be interesting to see where CMMC goes now that she's gone. Oh, GAO is going to be doing a report by the way on CMMC that should be coming out at the and in, in the fall time frame. And I think it's looking at a lot of these small business concerns and the like. So AO likes to throw wrenches into things. It wouldn't be surprising <laughs> if one gets thrown into here. China build doubles DARPA's budget, adds 52 billion for US chips. That pretty much says it all, as we just talked about from breaking defense. Quote, the United States Innovation and Competition Act, formerly called the Endless Frontiers Act, passed the Senate 80. 68 to 32 and appears likely to become law, but is now law. I believe so. And the bill will goes, it will go to the house. And then president Biden said he supports the bill. There we go. You know, action. China, it's funny that this whole thing is being framed because of China, but $52 billion for chips. That's, that's quite a bit of money as well. And doubles DARPA's budget from seven, basically 7 billion to like 14 billion is my understanding. 
Yeah, it is a lot of money, but I think people have had a little bit of exposure to the uh, microelectronics and just like understanding what it takes to build a fab. And it is an incredible process. I just, hearing some of the stories people tell me, it's just the laboriousness of it, the intricacies of it, the time that it takes, and the incredible expertise that you have to have to, to design some of these, especially you start to get down in the really low 30 nanometers and stuff like that. You start to really, you can really start to, the investment cost is just incredible. So I, I did a little tiny bit of research and one of the things TSMC to Taiwan, the Taiwan uh, fab, who's probably the biggest one in the world or the most high end, they invested in their one, I think it was like a couple of years ago, they invested 9.3 billion and they're estimating that their future fab is probably going to be closer to 20 billion. And that's a company that's been doing this for a long time. That's like Taiwan specialty. And, and so they have a lot of expertise, and, but we're going to have to build up a lot of that expertise. So we have to do the research and innovation and get the expertise probably to build the fabs, not even the cost for all the infrastructure and all the labor to, to do it. So 52 billion may not be that much when you start to think about, you know, about all that would go into that and then actually standing up maybe one or two, 52 billion could be gone like that. So this may just be the first if we really want to be serious about it, it might just be the first kind of down payment on, on, the, on some future stuff we're going to have to go after. Because you can't, you also just can't build like a fab and then never update it because otherwise you're just going to, you're going to lose the technology gains. So you're going to have to continually update it. So hopefully Congress is prepared to keep this afloat because I don't know, I don't know how complex it will be if it could actually compete with TSMC, what's being envisioned here. And if it actually would be like a supplier to the cell phone market or the digital TV, the TV market. In that case, maybe it could fund itself, but if it's going to be something that's more subsidized kind of thing that we just want to keep stuff on shore, Congress is going to have to be prepared to continue to pay for it. Yeah, hopefully that's that's not the case. I'm always scared of kind of industrial policy stuff and who gets the money, who are the winners, who are the losers, and government can't really make those choices. And there's got to be some kind of commercial investment and then payoff as well. And yeah, the whole thing's awkward to me as well, because like TSMC is so far ahead. And it's like, when you hear them talk about it, it's just like minor seismic activity or something like creates all these changes and you have to like troubleshoot. And it's just almost like an art of of sorts and ton of intangible knowledge probably goes into it. It'd be cool. They talk about like manufacturing in space and how, because you have like low gravity, there's like tons of these benefits where you don't get these minor imperfections that can throw all these things off in terms of creating cabling and wires and whatever. Maybe that also is true for chips. Maybe it's just like, should we just be building them up there? It's sure. space because I think like the... It's too big. It's also like super messy. The space stations apparently are absolutely disgusting places. So I'm not sure like <laughs> clean room things, yeah. but then maybe the moon, I think it makes sense why China is looking so so closely at doing more stuff on the moon. I think mining is one piece of it, but you could definitely see some of these other industries, like maybe it maybe it makes sense to have huge fabs on the moon. But you Probably. still have the gravity issue, which creates imperfections. Yeah, no, that's Just true. less gravity. Artificial, yeah, artificial gravity may not be perfect to... Yeah. Yeah. There's probably, yeah, I guess the lesson is like crawl, walk, run, right? Like it probably doesn't make sense to go straight to space with that. Yeah, Let's no, just no, build a damn no. chip first and then, and then we could talk about it. Get the 3d printers on the moon first and build it. some of the housing. Then. As the next one we got to provide and maintain a Navy, understanding the business of Navy shipbuilding from USNI news. And this is actually the SAS Jack Reed and, and Einhoff uh, writing this article, which was actually pretty long and, and decent in some ways, but here's the quote. 
Uh, quote, with competition limited because of low volume, specialized construction needs and high barriers to enter the market, Navy shipbuilding often fails to realize the benefits of being a monopsony where there's a single buyer, in other words. Since the 1960s, 14 U.S. shipyards that construct ships for the U.S. Navy have closed and three have left the defense industry. Only one new shipyard has been opened. As a result, just seven shipyards owned by four prime contractors, Navy warships today. By comparison, China has more than 20 shipyards supporting its naval surface ship expansion with dozens, dozens of commercial shipyards that dwarf the largest U.S. shipyards in size and throughput. So Jack Reed and Einhoff, you know, staying on. Last year, they, they had some interesting articles about, oh, we need more prototype testing and land-based testing. We can't get into these lead ship problems. And then they wrote some requirements that potentially weren't the most helpful in the past couple of NDAAs. It's, it'll be interesting to see what's coming out of this kind of com- competitive stance that they're looking at here now, especially with Biden and his very odd competition executive order that spanned way too long. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that you're going to get competition for, for the large U.S. ships unless unless we can start building like the cargo ships and use the same lines to build destroyers that you use to build cargo ships. But it seems to be from the article talking, it's the configuration of some of these shipyards is very specific. It's if you do a carrier, if you change the carrier configuration too much and you have to spend a bunch of time and labor to reconfigure everything. So it's not a, to me, it's just the not an efficient process. And I'm not, I won't pretend to be a Navy construction, you know, expert of any sort, but it does seem to me that there's a lot of, of, of new thinking that could be applied here. And I'm not sure the incentives are there for the new thinking quite yet, but I think we're going to have to get to the point where we're not just having to buy 50 destroyers every year to keep the industry afloat, but that they have the flexibility, they're adaptive tools or whatever it takes to make it, make it so that they can build submarines and aircraft carriers, but they could also build smaller cargo ships for unmanned, unmanned missions, or they could build some commercial vehicles if they had some gaps. And maybe this gets into the 3D thing. Maybe there's more parts that could be manufactured 3D. So maybe the construction could be simplified in some ways, but I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of innovation in this space. And I just wonder if the shipyards with the unionization and some of these long-term contracts, I wonder if the incentive is there to make like radical changes or if they just want the work to keep flowing their way. I don't know. Yeah, you make a good point. Because it, it felt like Reed and Einhoff were like off base in my perspective because they're like, okay, we there's the importance of predictability and stability and we need deliberate future planning. So it seems instead of tackling the industry's problems head on in like trying to drag them into a new way of doing business. It's just the industry is the industry and we just need to do a better job of planning. Like they cut that two bill or the, the request that the Navy cut that one and then they had to pay 33 million. And, and now all the members are getting mad because, hey, that, those were jobs that they're going to have to lay off. And it's just, like, I don't know if more deliberate, can we be more deliberate in the planning than we have been? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, like it, doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like there's much to squeeze out of that lemon. It's like we're pretty deliberate now, unless we almost sounds like when you read the article, almost sounds like they just want the Navy to say, we're going to buy four, four carriers every 10 years, and we're going to buy 30 destroyers every 10. Like they want like that level of predictability when there's a lot of dynamics going on with the Navy about what types of ships they need and what the future missions are, 
is this small carriers, large carriers, you know, there's like all kinds of, it's a dynamic thing. It's yeah, I don't know what they really expect from me. I didn't understand the conclusion either. I guess we'll see. It might just show up as a couple NDAA items next year. So the next one, China declassifies underwater drone amid Taiwan escalation from the Daily Sabah. Quote, the drone was test fired in the Taiwan Straits without human input a decade ago, uh, reported Daily South China Morning Post, adding that the drone, quote, could detect a mock craft, use artificial intelligence to identify its origins and hit it with a torpedo. Specifics suggest that the unmanned drone can patrol about 10 meters, 32 feet below the surface following a predetermined route. I was almost like, man, China's got some cool shit going on. <laughs> you, you could imagine if they had like, one, one friend point, pointed out to me. It's like, why is China not like doubling down on anti-submarine uh, warfare? It seems like they're not. And I don't know if that's true or not. If they have these underwater drones that can go out and hunt these things down, maybe that is good. But it seems like they have to follow a predetermined route. They can only go 10 meters below the surface. It doesn't seem like there's a, a ton of capability here. So maybe U.S. subs are, are just doing just fine. Oh, I, I have to believe that, that China is, is investing heavily in anti-sub technology. I would be very surprised if they weren't, just given the threat from, from the attack, U.S. attack subs on their growing fleet. I, they seem too forward-looking to ignore that. They, they may have declassified this, honestly. It's been out there for a decade. It might be like two or three generations old. They may not have cared about it anymore. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what to think. There's a lot of, there's a total lack of transparency in China's defense efforts. And so you only know what you're from satellites and things like that. So uh, I'm still scared, man, because people like still assume that the US submarines are just like overwhelmingly dominant. And I just don't know how true that is. Could we wake up very surprised on Taiwan invasion day? I don't know. The one thing that always gets me is whenever they hear the, the argument for the triad, and to me, it was always like, how many missiles do you need to as a nuclear deterrent? And if you have all these submarines, you get submarines all over with, what do they have, like 20, 20 Trident missiles that could take out a whole city? It's like, how many of those do you need? And they're like, you can't be assured that they can't be detected. That kind of, that kind of tells me that maybe the assurance isn't there that we're so invisible and invincible as well as invisible. But, yeah. yeah. Next one, Israel downs drone with airborne lasers from AV Web. Quote, the system built by the Air Force with Elbit Systems is mounted on a Cessna caravan and easily blasted all drones it encountered on the test. And the video was actually pretty interesting there. They're taking UAVs out from one kilometer or further. But again, <laughs> I was bullish on lasers. I'm flip-flopping potentially, but we're still in the early days here. It seems like defense is trying to struggle to catch up to offense. I'm glad lasers are still in the game. There's tons of other microwaves, kinetic, everything else. We'll see what I, I kind of trust. <laughs> the Israels are saying it's working. It's probably working. <laughs> yeah, that was an impressive video. I'm with you. I was, I, I've been a little skeptical, but to see that from a Cessna with a pretty, pretty low power unit, to see it burn a hole through that, through that drone, I don't know. It got my attention a little bit. So maybe there's, maybe there is a lot more applicability for this, for especially for missile defense or some kind of at least drone defense for ships. So maybe it makes sense that the Navy is going after this and, and maybe abandoning some of the railgun stuff that we love so much. But yeah, that was a great, that was a great demo. So I got a pair of articles here on electronic warfare. Uh, U.S. Army to test electronic warfare coders at the edge during upcoming exercise from C4ISR net. And the Army recently created new occupational specialty within its cyber branch dedicated to software development. 
The specialists will sit alongside operators and build tools on the spot to keep up with the dynamic environment in, in cyberspace. So essentially it takes, it used to take weeks or years even to really to change these signals, depending on what the enemy is doing and, and to change the EW systems to calibrate them. And they want to be able to do this just much faster by taking um, code, like army officers or enlisted men, put them at the edge and, and just get that done themselves. The Air Force itself is activating the first of its kind wing for Spectrum, also from C4ISRnet. C4ISR 350th Spectrum Wing Warfare out of Eglin Air Force Base. The group hopes to enable, equip, and optimize the fielding of EMS capabilities, electromagnetic systems. The wing will also provide maintenance, operational, and technical expertise to electronic warfare support. If we lose the fight in EMS, we'll lose the fight in other domains. We're here to make sure that doesn't happen. So the service is taking this very seriously. And I think that makes a, a ton of set sense there. And I guess as you can probably imagine that more and more military folks will be not necessarily fighting, but supporting the fight in these types of software defined tactics or operational support through software kinds of ways. And it seems to be the way of the future. I don't know where the happy medium is between kinetic folks and, and folks that are supporting in the back. Yeah, I think we've always had these folks, but they've usually been contractors. And yeah, when the army was first, because the Air Force was, was doing a lot of things with like Kessel Run, where the military people were actually doing some coding and they were deep in the software development process, but they weren't necessarily like at the edge. They weren't sitting there in a battalion assigned to the battalion and working for the commander. They were still in the acquisition community. So when the army first stood up that whole software coders thing, I thought it was just going to be for the acquisition community, but I really like where they've gone with it, with pushing these guys to the edge, standing up a whole new uh, military MOS, military occupational specialty, and, uh, and putting them into the cyberspace world. So it just makes all, it makes a lot of sense. And for EW, particularly reprogramming is like a perpetual challenge for, for any EW system, making sure you have that uh, set up and configured right and that the threats are and everything. So yeah, the fact that the Air Force and the Army both are, are tackling that in different ways, I think is is great. But yeah, it just shows to me, it just shows the potential. Like you can use these folks for this. Just imagine all of the other stuff that they would have incredible value in, a, in an operational unit, just in terms of processing and the data piece. So almost like the, the Jake teams that are going to go out to the COCOMs, connecting all the data, decision analysis. And you could see these software coding specialties start to grow and commanders saying, I want a hundred of these people in every unit. So it'll probably be the demand signal will probably start to grow. Interesting. And by the way, the Navy is now starting to field the next generation jammer mid-band on the EA-18 Growler. That's a Raytheon product. Lots going on in that space. Yeah. The Air Force is going to use that too. That thing is going to be pretty, pretty badass. So the next gen jammer. Yeah. That's what we've been waiting for them for a while, I guess. <laughs> so I'm glad they're starting to get them out. It's not easy, man. It's not I don't doubt it. So the next one we got here, our favorite program, Watchdog Group finds F-35 sustainment costs could be headed off an affordability cliff. Defense News, the Department of Defense will face a $6 billion gap in 2036 between actual costs of sustaining the service, the services F-35s and the costs of the services can actually afford, the GAO said. Air Force officials have told the GAO that unless sustainment costs decrease, the services only available remaining option is to meet the affordability constraints by reducing the total number of F-A aircraft they plan to purchase or reduce the aircraft's planned flying hours. 
no duh. <laughs> no, I thought that I, I was listening to the podcast on the Mitchell Institute and I thought for sure they were saying, I think it was General Dev Tool that was saying that the costs were on their way down, which I didn't totally understand, but that the cost could only come down if they kept a higher quantity of aircraft, which does make sense to me because if you do lower the aircraft numbers, but you wind up using them at a greater rate than what you're expecting, which anything could happen and you need to start flying more, then you are going to burn them out faster. You're not going to have the replenishment because you won't have the, the quantities uh, to be able to space that out. So I don't know. I, I guess it is like one of those things where is that really true? Is cutting it going to magically reduce sustainment cost? Or it, will you have to reduce the flying hours substantially and just let them sit on the tarmac and just put everybody in trainers and stuff like that in order to get the same cost down? Because it's, I don't know. And it, it, there was another thing in there about even if you took, even if the parts were free, they would still be 14% over be given everything else, given all the other, other costs of, of flying. So it is, it's interesting. I'm curious to see where this goes. I don't feel comfortable with the numbers. I don't feel comfortable with the Air Force's position that it would magically go down. But I also, hearing what other people say about they could see these costs coming down over time, I also don't understand that. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. Yeah. I had a blog post I was looking at the actual cost per flying hour it was like in the 60,000s back in 2015 and it fell to 44,000 in 2018. And then by 2020, it was like 38 or so. And it was coming down pretty fast. And if you put that into base year 2012, which is their target for 25,000 per flying hour, maybe they get there. But yeah, yeah it's also, it's, I, I feel like it's backwards, right? Usually... Like when you look at the UAV or the F-16, we bought more because it was effective and cost less. It costs so much, we have to buy more to make it cost less, right? Like the yeah, logic is, it, it feels backwards relative to organically what works, <laughs> like why we bought more UAVs. We bought more UAVs for a different reason than what they're arguing we should buy more F-35s for. And maybe this will make sense because NGAD will be, will be coming out and they'll be able to scale that up, digital engineering and 3D printing. Like maybe that will get into production way faster than the F-35 did. And, and maybe that will fill this gap. Maybe if they field Skyborg as a co-pilot, that will offset how many man fighters you need. So it seems like there could be some things that are playing into this. It's just not really clear. But if they do wind up, we traded F-35s, right? We traded the capacity for capability back in the day by not replacing one for one, every F-16, every A-10. And so now it's almost, we let all of our legacy fleet go. And then we also cut back F-35. Like a, the capacity piece is going to be, is going to be really bad shape if NGAT, for, let's say, doesn't feel high quantities of aircraft for 10 years. And so the autonomy piece uh, doesn't play out as we hope. But it could be a real, it could be a real trouble. So I think that's why some people are pretty, pretty scared about them pulling back on the 17, 1700 number. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like, feel like we're missing some, some pieces here of the puzzle and hopefully we'll get some more information to fill that in. Yeah. But here's an article that like makes me flip my reasoning on the F-35, because again, I always think of Ford military sales as like often an arbiter, maybe the F-35 is, is too politicized, but Lockheed's F-35 topples competition in Swiss fighter competition. That's from Defense News, quote, over the course of the program, Switzerland plans to spend up to 6 billion US francs or Swiss francs or $6.5 billion to buy 36 F-A conventional takeoff and landing models to replace this aging Hornet fleet. 
So they beat out the Eurofighter Typhoon, the default, the Salt Rafale, and the Boeing F 18EF to get there. And so, of course, this came with a bunch of industrial participation requirements. So they're going to, Switzerland is going to be domestically producing 400 F 35 canopies and transparencies. And then they're also going to create a maintenance hub in Switzerland for European F 35 canopies. And then it also sweetened the pot by to have assembly of four F-35s in an existing facility. But apparently some of the other firms like Eurofighter and Dassault were, were offering them even more. But it's hard to say, like, why did they choose F-35? It seems like their rationale was it's a comprehensively networked system. So not for its organic fighter attributes, but because it's low observability and, and highly networked. But, you know, that always... Again, it's like an external validation. If it was just the U.S. making these decisions on the F-35, I would be a lot less comfortable. Israel's designed to buy it. Switzerland's designed to buy it. Other people are buying in. Maybe there's some hidden juice there. Oh, I think uh, without a doubt, uh, the F-35, if you look at the detailed specs, is going to come off better. It's the, for one, the integration of the different missiles that can be, can be launched from it. I'm not sure that the Eurofighter has... The ability to buy some of the U.S. is integrated with some of the U.S. systems. They have more flexibility there. They're not just constrained to the European market. Yeah, it's better, better armament, better. I think probably every sensor on it is better. The AI kind of piece of the whole, the whole package, the software package is just, it's got to be a generation beyond Eurofighter just in terms of how much money, how much development, the, just the, the, everything high end, the highest end radar. Stealth is actually probably the least, the thing I would emphasize the least, but yeah, the networking piece and the ability to, to use its radar and other sensors, provide situation awareness at very long ranges, give options to the, to, to the, to the pilot and just be able to synchronize all the different data sources in a, in a coherent way. Yeah. I, I wasn't that surprised by it. I think what will be interesting is if more and more of the European nations start to go this way. I think Germany is now looking at it. You have, you have the UK, Italy. So if that, and you have the Scandinavian countries, if that starts to grow, you're going to start to wonder, is the Eurofighter, how long would the Eurofighter stay? Wasn't surprised by the selection. I am a little bit surprised that they weren't, they didn't maybe play the Euro card because they do. There is some benefit to probably for Europe, Europe to keep their industrial base there. But I guess Lockheed's doing a good enough job of spreading the love and making everybody feel like their industry will not be neglected. So they were comfortable enough to do it. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I, I just don't really understand why Switzerland needs a big air force or one at all. Just make it like an A2AD castle there on their mountains and come get me, right? Maybe they just want the F-35 to help target and, and shoot things down. I don't know, but it seems to me, I don't think Switzerland's going to, you know, have this big expeditionary force. Well, you know what they said after World War II, that for a long time, the, the Swiss was like, we're the best armed in Europe because they hid all their stuff in the mountains and they were ready for an invasion, but they didn't really advertise it or something like that. I don't know. I think the Swiss are a little bit uh, sneaky with, with their capabilities. <laughs> yeah. My, I, my aunt and cousin are out there and they have to be they all have to, you know, do their service in Switzerland still. But it's a huge, like one thing I didn't really know about, it's a huge gun culture. Like, it's like Texas over there, but yeah. like bigger. <laughs> it's crazy. Good for them. So we'll just do a quick rundown on a couple others here. Ghost 60 UAV with incredible payload are making U.S. special operation 
operations force's new toy. What was interesting about this one was it's a woman-owned uh, small business that got a, a set aside and they're doing some kind of cutting edge stuff in terms of in-house engineering, composite layup, 3D uh, printing. So just to go show you that some of these small business set aside, they actually can produce innovation. <laughs> so that's good. We like to see more of that. USAF awards Raytheon $2 billion for next stage of LRSO, long-range standoff nuclear cruise missile from Flight Global. This will uh, replace the AGM-86 air launch cruise missile as the service's nuclear-tipped weapon. And the EMD phase, engineering, manufacturing, and design phase, uh, is expected to be complete in February 2027, so not too far off. USAF is said to have plans to buy 1,000 to 1,100 LRSO missiles for about $10.8 billion. To compete with Elon Musk Starlink, China's private space ventures must work with state-owned competitors from South China Morning Post. This one was gated, but I thought it was interesting because you could see the very beginning and they were talking about how entrepreneurs like 10, 15 years ago had this interesting opportunity to be entrepreneurs and potentially it's not the same anymore. So I think China will still probably get a bunch of productivity and oomph out of where they're at. But if they're closing that aperture uh, for kind of new innovation and forcing like these partnerships with state-owned enterprises, then maybe that's a bad sign from their own perspective. And of course, Jack Ma and the other Jack, they kind of got disappeared for a little bit. So that's a huge warning sign out. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, to me, that's like the opposite. I think there's been pretty good research about the state-owned enterprises in China not being efficient. And it was really where China's gotten most of their innovation is from the, the private sector by letting them, when Shenzhen and whatever, let, let them do their thing. And then the state benefits. But yeah, now you can see they've already, the Chinese government is already putting like monitors in all the corporate boards of every private company in China. Now they have to work with the SOEs and share all their stuff. I can't imagine a private entity loving that at all and it being an efficient relationship. It's got to be terrible. So I don't know. This seemed to me to be like China going in the the opposite direction of, of where SpaceX was. But Yeah, I guess like reading this for me, usually it's like the other side, like we're always reading, oh, China's doing the greatest thing ever. Be scared. You're like, they're growing. And this is reading this headline for me is probably like a Chinese person reading like a GAO report, like, oh man, those Americans go in the wrong direction. <laughs> it's good to see that. A couple of Elon Musk things here. Elon Musk calls rocket launch regulations broken after Air Force delays SpaceX launch. The rules are meant for a handful of expendable launch vehicles a year from a few government facilities. Under those rules, humanity will never make it to Mars. And then the next one here, Elon Musk says SpaceX competitor ULA would be dead as a doornail without Pentagon help. Quote, Musk has previously referenced ULA receiving a billion-dollar annual subsidy from the Pentagon last year called the, comp- the competitor a complete waste of taxpayer money. Bruno, for his part, has repeatedly called the idea that ULA receives government subsidies an absurd myth. I'm not really sure if it is a myth. I've been, my understanding is that's fairly true, but it looks like SpaceX, right, with Falcon and the Falcon Heavy, can now do all the missions, I think, that are required in the national security space. So maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, I don't know. But it's good to have competitors in there. We would never have known whether ULA was efficient or not with if SpaceX hadn't come around. Yeah, and I think I I have to believe that he what he means by subsidizing is that their overhead is probably much more substantial than maybe SpaceX. He's also benefited from some SpaceX benefited from some, a lot of government grants and 
cheap loans and different things to, to incentivize that market. So I don't think SpaceX is completely immune to having some government benefits. But yeah, I agree with you. There, there may be a point though where I could definitely see where private industry, maybe you have start to have more competitors like SpaceX, maybe it's Blue Origin, maybe it's some others that are not on the radar right now, Lidos or something gets in the, gets in the game, where after a while, maybe the major defense primes are just so uncompetitive that they aren't players anymore. Maybe it goes away, but I don't think we're there quite yet. So yeah, I think keeping them in a the game makes sense, even for the, just the defense industrial base, if for nothing else. Yeah. Apparently it's not technically a subsidy, but it's just like about a billion dollars worth of contracts that keep people on the workforce and have like facilities ready and stuff like that. So it's pretty close. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I'll just, let's just wrap up with this last one. AFSOC's unique array for armed Overwatch competition from Real Clear Defense. Quote, the chosen system is a multi-role aircraft capable of performing well in both ISR and close air support missions. It must be flexible with reconfigurable ISR and the ability to carry different types of munitions. The platform must be able to fly from austere airfields with light logistical footprint. It must be transportable either in a sea or a sea. The chosen aircraft must have significant range and endurance with substantial payload, plus the capability to loiter for hours over an area of interest. And so here's just like, again, like Air Force just can't not kick themselves in the butt and just over throw, throw every requirement in the book at something and like turn, we want it to be an ISR aircraft now. And so the author was saying one of the more, more interesting capable candidates now is the Bronco 2 from Lidos and an American subsidiary from Paramount Group, because it's the only entrant designed from the wheels up to be an ISR and close air support platform. So I don't know. What's your view there? Is this kind of now fixation on ISR? It seems Air Force likes to, to do this sometimes with their programs. Oh, we're doing this here. So let's make you do that over there and do multiple things. Are you a multi-mission fan or should they have just, let's just do the one thing? Yeah, no, I, I think, I think we've learned that with multi-mission aircraft, you have to make compromises for different things. So you want the long loiter time. If you want close air support, you're going to have to put some type of munitions on it that invariably adds weight that probably is going to diminish some of the, the loiter time. Maybe it won't impact it as much. Maybe it can be designed okay, but no, I think from our previous conversations, I think you gain a lot by staying simple and by buying by staying simple, you get more cost-effective solutions. And then you can also improve your, your capacity. So yeah, I think by relying on this, maybe they have it figured out, but this is the second example of SOCOM going after what seems to be a really exotic solution. And they've always seemed to be more focused on things that were mature and simple and straightforward and proven. And I don't know, I don't know what's going on right now, but they remember the other example was that really complex VTOL thing. I think that's actually, wasn't it uh, the, the Dr. Ripper's, what's, what's it called? The Valeria? The, no. The, oh, the Valer- Valenzo. Yeah. Yeah. Valenzo. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were playing in that? I, I think I, they I thought were... that was mostly like the, the bigger, I guess they, he did say that they're medium to heavy sized drones. Yeah, I, I thought they were looking for the Bell Boeing kind of team and that stuff. Yeah. So I think the Valencia Valance was another, was a player. So maybe Dr. Ripper knows something, but yeah, I remember that was another example of where they wanted it to be like a better version of the V2, but it had to land anywhere and take off really fast and fly really fast. Like it just seemed to be like a lot of concurrent requirements that would drive you typically to make some compromises. So yeah, a second example here, maybe SOCOM knows a lot of things we don't know. They've 
been pretty successful in the past. So I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but I'm with you. Yeah. ISR and close air support seems like a competing mission a little bit. And austere and no. like this logistical <laughs> thing and range and lawyer and everything. And yeah, I guess my bias is the air force came in here and had it had its own biases and, and wanted to push it in a certain direction for their own reasons. And that's why SOCOM's kind of moving in that direction, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. That's it for us for the week. And we'll talk to you next time. This concludes another episode of acquisition talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.